0: Welcome to the Birthing Instincts podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices.
1: And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth.
0: Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Soul Fire production. Hello. Hi. Hi. From my sketchy hotel room Wi-Fi. Hello.
1: <laughs> what are you doing in Vegas?
0: I'm babysitting a family, just to keep an eye oh, on Oh, that's that. right. right. Yep, 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 yep.
1: yep. But
0: Good for you. I have PTSD tech stuff going on right now because, as you know, I had been uh, hacked and locked out of my Instagram account for almost yeah. eight or nine days. And last night I was able to get it back, but I still can't put on the two-factor authentication yet. I have to wait a couple of days to do that. And I'm always worried about clicking on links now. And I'm I'm nervous about, you know, people hacking into me. And you know, it, it is it's traumatic. It's being violated. It's like someone was in your RV when you weren't there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got it back. You're on your way back yeah, to the these top.
0: People are are subhuman. They are. They're a different species. You know, they Suckered some people into buying stuff or paying money to stuff and they sent messages as if they were me. And uh most people saw right through it because they knew that I wouldn't offer a clothing line. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a jeans and t-shirt guy. So if there was a clothing line with jeans and t-shirts, maybe. (laughs) I know you got a birth story. You just got a couple things. I got a text this morning from one of the midwives that was at the one of the Texas Breach seminar. She had a breach delivery this morning at home and she was all excited. So she sent me a text. So that's always fun to hear that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then I got another message from somebody, which I just have to read because it's so funny. She says, damn, my students OB just told her at 36 weeks to starve herself. So baby doesn't get bigger. (laughs) Ugh.
1: (laughs) <laughs> definitely dumb dr dogma on that one you got it
0: oh you got it you caught me off guard so i don't have any birth stories to tell you but you do so let's get into it. but yeah. let's tell people about our guests today first who do we have coming on
1: so we are talking to the ladies who created you know a couple of them i'm sure there were many people involved but the ladies who created the movie Born Free, the documentary that I've been talking to you guys about. So we will bring them on in just a couple of minutes.
0: Yeah, it's no fun. We've been having a, a lot of guests lately. We had Jen, the ethicist, and we had Sarah, the actress, mother, twin mom, breech, birth, teaching mom. So on. And it's kind of fun to have these yeah. people because to yeah. me, some of them, I don't, you know, Sarah, I know very well, but Jen, I thought was really interesting and I'm looking forward to hearing about the documentary, which I, I thought was very well done.
1: Yeah, me too. I, I really I enjoyed thought, it. I, I actually cried it. through
0: most of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell I us did. your birth story.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't have birth stories very much anymore, huh? When we were in LA, you and I were doing, you know, several births a piece, and we could go back and forth with birth stories all the time, but we've... We've slowed down considerably. So I'm always excited to tell a story. So this was a first time mom. And, you know, funny enough, the prenatal visit that we did right before she went into labor, she kind of mentioned like, what is this thing that's sticking up in my ribs? And then my student felt and she was like, what is that? And I felt and I was like, no, this baby's been head down, you know, but I felt and I felt and I felt. And then someone had talked to me about a midwife, you know, in a separate occasion, someone had talked to me about a midwife missing a breach. And then I had dreams over the weekend that her baby was breached. And I actually was going to go back on Sunday and ask her if I could feel again, just to be totally sure. Right. And then she goes into labor. And so I'm thinking, okay, I hope this baby's not (laughs) breached. And I walk in She's actually only been laboring for a couple of hours as a first time mom. But, you know, all the signs were showing that she was moving pretty fast. Um, lots of bloody shows. She went from, you know, contractions being short and every two minutes to being over a minute and every two minutes. And I was like, I'll just come over and check in. And I walked in and she said, you know, if this is the beginning, I'm not going to be able to do this. And I was like, let's just see, you know, set everything up, kind of get it feel for what's happening. It was very obvious she was in active labor, um, nauseous. She's like, I just don't feel well. And I said, yeah, you know, labor's really hard. And so then I was trying to get her up and maybe get in the shower and try something different to change up the energy. And I said, well, I could check you. And if you're far enough along, we could start to set up the tub. Would that be nice? And she's like, yeah. So I said, okay. So I checked her and she was you know, six to seven centimeters already, and totally like moving along, fantastic. But when I did the check, I was very happy to feel the <laughs> was, bones of the head. <laughs> you knew
0: I was going to ask that question. I know you could see, me. Yeah, you saw me approaching like, the mic.
1: <laughs> I did. I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely a head. Thank goodness. So, for those of you who may not know what you'd be feeling, if it was a butt, it definitely would be a little bit more squishy, and you might even feel like little toes. Um, or feet. Like sometimes you can feel the feet or toes. I've done enough vaginal exams with supporting you, Dr. Stu, that I have the privilege of being able to know what that feels like. And so anyways, we did all this work to set up the tub. You know how it is at home. Sometimes you run out of hot water and all this stuff. So we finally get the tub set up enough that she could get in the tub. I can hear her grunting, my assistant's on the way. And she puts one toe in the water and is like, no, it's too hot. And I was like, oh, well forget that so she was in the bathroom you know how that is finding a little tiny space to be in and finally we kind of moved her into the bedroom found a comfortable place on the floor just so we could have more room and she was doing amazing and then we had some decelerations changed positions they stayed really consistent my assistant you know said 90 and then I asked again she's like 80
2: uh, yeah yeah
1: So, and this is a prime at first time mom, right? So I'm like, I don't know how fast she's going to be able to get her baby out. So I got her on the birth stool, which is very effective. I did some, you know, guided pushing and I could feel a really tight ring on the inside. And so I did pull out my scissors, which I haven't done as a midwife, only as a student, um, because I felt like this is one of those times when an episiotomy might take, you know, 10 minutes off of a delivery. And if we have a baby who's, you know, in the 80s, that might be prudent. So I directed her to push and I looked at my assistant, and I was like, what would you do right now? And she's like, I would like kind of get the baby back up out of the pelvis and maybe see if that helps. But she had been in hands and knees before this. So I kind of was like, mm, okay, I'd consider it. But mom pushed really well and baby came out quickly. And, you know, we had an APGAR of four, but baby only needed um, stimulation and, you know, welcoming and some gentle moments in mommy's arms to be able to come around and have great APGARs for five minutes. We didn't need to do any breaths or anything. Um, So it was a absolutely beautiful birth and a little unexpected for a first time mom because her entire active labor was about six hours. So
0: You know, that's great. So how long was the heart rate Below 100, just out of curiosity, from the time that you first noticed it's staying down I'd below below 100, below 90.
1: Probably about three or four minutes.
0: Oh, that's how long it took to get the baby out or it came back yeah. up again? No. Oh, like that's that. fantastic, because that's the thing yeah. that I always admire you guys so much for is that, you know, when you have somebody who's having those sort of variable D-cell or that prolonged D-cell, I'm trained to like do something so I can put on a vacuum or I can put forceps on that sort of thing. You guys really can't. And when you're dealing with the primate, the judgment of like, is this going to take four or five minutes or is this going to take 45 minutes? Right. You have to make that decision relatively quickly. Yeah. Because, you know, even transporting is in that situation, it's not really that beneficial because it still takes 15 minutes to an hour depending where you live to get someplace. So exactly. Yeah. So you guys have a lot more, uh, I guess it's a combination of courage and anxiety <laughs> that <laughs> I do. Uh, I mean, you
1: just have to do what you can do. Right. So that's why I was like, I knew that, you know, I didn't want to call a, for a transport, but that was definitely a, on my mind, but she brought her baby out so quickly. That was great. You know, one of the things about being on a birth stool, that's a downside is, Tearing and bleeding, and she did have both. We had about a thousand units before the placenta was out. Like the third time this has happened, but we you gave a her thousand
0: CCs. You mean a thousand CCs?
1: Yeah. What did I say?
0: You said units.
1: <laughs> yes, CCs. Those units.
0: Yeah, um those Anyway,
1: units. we gave her pitocin, and the bleeding was totally managed, and yeah, did a so long you, suturing. But you know
0: what did it? We, it's kind of like the old saying: where if you pull out the forceps, the mom pushes harder. So you pulled out the scissors. <laughs> she didn't
1: She didn't see it. My student didn't even see it. I know, I, mean, I know. But you're right. I know what you're talking about. So anyways, right. that was really fun. Yeah.
0: Great. And your record's intact. No episiotomies.
1: Yes. Knock on wood. <laughs> but you know
0: what? It is a tool in the toolbox that people should not think of as the devil. You know, obviously it's very rare in our world to ever cut one, but there are times where it like you said, if it's going to save you 10 minutes at a baby's heart rate at 80, that's a huge, huge thing. So yeah. Yeah. Right. So well done. Well done. <laughs> great. I may have well a birth done, story. Mommy. I may be in a week or two. I might have a birth story too, because I'm going to be uh, back exciting. in LA covering Dr. Flores for eight or nine days. So we have about three or four people do about three of them, I think are breaches. So It'll be sort of an interesting thing to be back on call again. I've really liked not being on call. It's really been great. Uh, So being back on call, is going to be a different experience.
1: Yeah. So we um, also should plan a time to get together and do a recording together.
0: Yeah, we could that Wednesday. We'll talk about it. it. We don't need to plan. (laughs) We don't need to let our listeners listen to our planning. (laughs) You know, bliss. Some of our sponsors make the podcast possible, and we have another new sponsor called Needed at thisisneeded.com. They're a supplement group, and you know them. So why don't you tell us a little bit about them?
1: Yeah, um, Julie was one of my clients in Los Angeles, and her partner, Ryan, and her created this company. So it's a female-owned company, which I obviously really love. And I love the attention to detail they put in in making sure that they were addressing the nutrient deficiencies that so many women are dealing with, even in their studies and their research, they found that even with a prenatal vitamin, they were finding that a lot of these women were still deficient. So they went and did tons of research and really created the most comprehensive prenatal multi on the market. And one of the things I really like about what they're doing too, is that they have a powder which has the protein powder and the vitamins in it. So women who maybe are having a hard time taking so many vitamins a day can get all the nutrients they need. And our clients of mine or have been past clients of mine know that I'm big on using a smoothie as a way to increase your protein. So they have so many amazing products. That's just one of them. So you should definitely go and check it out and they can be shipped right to your door. So-
0: I've always been suspicious about these prenatal vitamins that come in these giant, giant pills. And, you know, so it's really nice to have something that comes in a powder that you can mix into anything that you wanted to, whether it's a smoothie or applesauce or pudding or, you know, just a glass of water, you can mix it in. So you go to thisisneeded.com and use the code Birthing Instincts. Also, it's a code, and you get 20% off a one time order. Or if you use the code Birthing Instincts, you get $100 off of your order that's three months or more this is a recurring order. So that's again, this is needed.com, code word birthing instincts. Thanks, this is needed, because it's needed.
1: <laughs> well, let's bring no, on what? our guests. Yeah, bring them on. That's your job.
0: No, I know. I mean you introduced <laughs> them. All. I'll bring them on. Oh my God. That's it.
1: So we have Sarah Oget, who's a friend of mine here in Santa Barbara. She's a birth doula and executive producer of Born Free. She's the co-founder of The Mother Lovers and a proud mama to four boys, including twins, two that she had vaginally. And then Paula James Martinez is the director. And she's also the character. Well, she's not a character. She's a real person. But she's the story that we're following and the narrator. She's that lovely accent I knew you'd appreciate. So she's the director and uh, co-founder of Mother Lovers as well. And a happy mama to Luna. You
3: had a home birth, right, Paula? I had a birth center birth. You were
1: with a midwife at a birth center in Los Angeles, right?
3: Yeah, in Pasadena. Um.
1: Oh, that's the deal, that Delmar, yeah, exactly, which has
3: just turned into Moxie Birth, I believe. They just restarted. So, oh,
0: yeah, they did. Like- oh, that's exciting because they were closing and I didn't know that they were going to reopen. That's great.
3: Yeah, it's an OB midwife led collab, as far as I understand. I'm not sure who the OB there is, but it's interesting. I have to find what out. Doing. <laughs> I'm
1: learning all about it. Hi, guys. Hi to see you so glad that you joined us you know one of the questions I wanted to start with is can you tell us a little bit about what the
3: mother lovers is Sarah do you want to start I can start I mean basically I think it came from I made the film in essence because I discovered the state of maternal health in the United States through the process of having my own child and you know growing up in the UK it's a very different system And then like the data poured in and everything starts to pour in and it got bigger and bigger and scarier and scarier. And I was like, this is awful. But also in the process of meeting the film, I met so many incredible human beings and so many people trying to make change and people like Sarah and, you know, and there's this big expansive world, but I was like, everyone's kind of disconnected. And I came from the space of, I was a women's magazine editor. I can talk big, you know, to a lot of people. That's why I made the film. And the mother lovers kind of came into action as well. I was like, let's bring everyone into the tent. You know, the idea of anyone can be a mother lover, not a mother other thing, um, you know, be.
0: <laughs> you can say, <laughs> say that, by the way, you podcast. can say it on oh, I podcast. didn't know. Uh,
3: I was saying to Sarah, I was like, I'm British and I swear so much that I was like, trying to restrain myself. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think this idea of we can join together and we can amplify and we can create change. And I think ideally Mother Lover came together to be this kind of educational platform to bring all these brands together and all of these workers together and give them a voice and give them something to rally behind. And then I guess I'm going to throw to Sarah so she can talk more about like the actionable steps, but that's kind of the essence of where it started. Yeah. I think that
2: if you throw just like one stat about the state of maternal health in America to most people, they'll say, wait, but why? Right. And I don't think there is one answer as to why, you know, the maternal mortality rate is increasing. And I don't think there's one answer as to how are we going to fix it? I think it's a multi-pronged approach. And so the mother lovers is just trying to create a space and bring together everybody's voices and everybody's talents, basically, to create an awareness for this story that happens to millions of American families to promote access to affordable care by providing, you know, grants for people who can't afford home births, for example, by providing scholarship funds to train more midwives, you know, creating a platform where people can have equal access to educational material so they can have make their own informed consent and create a space where we try to promote and have hold providers and among and then some it goes beyond that accountability in their care and the care they're providing. So the mother lovers is the arm through which all the stories that are told in Born Free, which are just a small fraction of what happens every single day in America. But that is the how do we fix it part of this. And that is through becoming a mother lover and promoting all the different ways in which we can address the issues around it.
1: Great. And how did you guys meet? How did this relationship start? And how did you actually Paula? Do you have experience in making movies before this? Like, how did you decide to make this movie? No,
3: I'm an insane person. Like, I (laughs) truly, I I guess to the Sarah question, that kind of comes secondary to the film coming together. So I'll answer how the film started first. I, as I said, you know, was born in the UK. My mom had National Health Service midwives. Midwives are very normal. I found myself pregnant in California, and I did not have any clue how the healthcare system really worked here. So I went to a big hospital, the big shiny one that I could find in LA, because that seemed like the right thing to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I signed on to have an OB because I didn't even understand how you would find a midwife in the United States at that point. And when I was about 34 weeks, they suggested that they induce... 10 days early because they were on vacation on my due date, even though we'd had discussions my entire pregnancy that I wanted to try for unmedicated. I wanted to do, you know, and so I kind of freaked out and I said to my husband, I'm not ever going back to this hospital. And everyone said I was crazy. They're like, you can't change providers at 34 weeks. And I was like, watch me. (laughs) 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 And so my friend, Hayley, who's a midwife at Del Mar and actually- Emma Tillman who was my doula and she yes I know (laughs) so Emma who Stuart knows she wasn't even a doula at the time particularly she was like in very early training but a dear friend of mine kind of pointed me in the right direction and I changed to a birth center birth and I had a fantastic birth I had precipitous labor my daughter was born in about I think four hours of labor, five hours of labor. And and Emma caught the baby, my doula caught the baby. And I was like, this is magical. Everyone should have birth like this. This is the best thing ever. And people were like, you're a crazy person. And I was telling them how wonderful birth actually was. At the same time, I had another friend who was kind of in a similar situation, but she didn't have the firstly the privilege, but also like the bossy journalist background where I kind of was felt able to advocate for myself and she was induced and the baby didn't come and she ended up having an emergency c-section and she almost died and I sat there with a newborn and I kept like running this through was it just luck that my birth turned out the way it did or was it because I had come from a certain background was it the privileges I had was it the way I, I knew how to advocate for myself and I went down wormholes and I started researching and I started reading all these horrifying statistics. And I was there like breastfeeding, consuming this information. And I said to my husband, this is so messed up. What should I do? How can I tell people? And there's all these articles, but no one really seems to care. And he was like, make a film. He was like, that's the best way to tell a lot of people about a thing. He used to be a film producer. He was like, make a film. And I was like, okay, I've made three minute fashion films for Armani. This will be fine. I can make a feature documentary. (laughs) And so that's really how the journey started. And I kind of, I guess I picked up Sarah on the journey. Someone was like, if you're making this film, you need to connect to Sarah. She will be your person. She will be your ally. And as the film progressed, mother of lovers kind of grew out of it and our friendship. And, you know, I think the natural part of everything in Born Free, which has been so special, is that everyone kind of just fell into place. It's been a very kind of natural, special thing. People have phoned me from across the country and like, how can I help? Brands have literally stood up and gone, this isn't on our schedule. This doesn't necessarily make sense for our marketing, but how can we help? You know, And I think to me, that's what this idea of being a mother lover is, is that everyone can help. And we are kind of at this place where we can facilitate change and we can invite maybe the uninvited, I think for example, men and dads are a really big part of this conversation. Let's find ways to invite them in, you know? Anyway, that was my long, really demented story of how oh, no, I ended love up it. making a film. I love it. You know, I didn't end up making a film, but
1: your story sounds similar to mine in that when I was pregnant, you know, I also found myself like, where are the midwives? Because I had watched my sister deliver with midwives, you know, 10 years before. And there I was, you know, just going down the normal path. And then I started devouring, you know, all of the information. There was actually a book called The Immaculate Deception, which somehow I got my hands on from the library. And I was the same thing. Like, how is this not a thing that everybody's talking about? Why are we not shouting from the rooftops about this? So I can really relate to that, to to dis- discovering this and feeling like you wanted to really help people understand more.
2: Um, I'm giggling because mine's the opposite. Whereas I was convinced I was going to have midwifery care, convinced I was going to have a home birth, and then found out I was having twins and went, oh, wait, now I have to go find an OB. Like I did the opposite. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) And Sarah, do you have a film background? Like what made you an expert and somebody she had to meet in making this film? Like what's your background? So,
2: no, I have never, ever been involved in a film before, but I have spent, you know, I became a birth doula many years before I became a mother. And I've had a long standing devotion around maternal health and access to equal care. And I've done it both in the US and abroad. And I was part of an incredible group of women philanthropists who came together to fund pilot projects for a big global health organization, in hopes that the governments would then pick them up. Because often what happens you know, actually in a lot of countries that receive aid is that someone will parachute in and provide all the aid and then leave again. And then they're kind of stuck without having ongoing care of what it might, you know, what they might need. You know, it's it's the whole teach a man to fish or give a man a fish kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so for over four years, I worked on a pilot project in Uganda that just helped change the government's attitude around misoprostol and what that looks like to include it in all of these, what are called mama kits, which is what every woman has to buy in a pharmacy in order to birth in either a national hospital or at home or in a a rural clinic and to include it as part of those because the rates of hemorrhage um, among women in Uganda was shockingly high. And so within that group of female philanthropists, so I've I've worked in nonprofit work for a long time. And it was one of these, these women that I worked with that I looked up to that actually had met Paula and said, well, if you're interested in maternal health, Sarah's your gal kind of thing. And so, no, I've never done anything with film. And I can't honestly say I had anything to do creatively with this film, but I have immense passion and I was sure that this message needed to get out. And so I put, you know, my talents to work in being able to find funding to make sure we could finish the film and get it to where we wanted so that more people could see it.
1: Which is a very important part of a big project like this, So, you know, the funding and the passion. and being able to inspire people to support things.
0: So, hey, Bliss, it's time to talk about one of our newest sponsors. Yeah, we're going to talk blanket. about it. I'm really excited about I'm really excited. I still haven't got mine because I haven't been home. But Well, you know, uh,
1: they're coming from Australia, too. It's an Australian-based company.
0: Yeah, it was probably delivered today because I've been following uh, these things on my email. Anyway, tell us about Splash Blanket. <laughs> people don't want to know that I'm waiting for mine.
1: Well, you know what's really awesome about them? For one, they're luxurious. So they're so soft and they're something that you absolutely would want to cuddle up next to. But the thing that makes it really amazing is that it is waterproof and absorbent and holds up to a liter of fluids without leakage. So there's so many different things that you can use this for. Originally, They made them for, you know, sexy time for people who wanted to have something underneath them. I don't know about you, Stu. I'm not going to ask you this question, but our listeners, you know, if you ever had sex while you were on your cycle and you, you know, you decided to pull out a towel or something, it's not really the sexiest thing in the world, but you have this beautiful, luxurious blanket to be able to put underneath you is really amazing. But they have all of these other ways that you can use it. So you can use it during your birth. If you're laboring and you are bleeding or having bloody show, or maybe your fluid is leaking, it's a beautiful thing for that. You can use it postpartum. Maybe you're on your cycle and you are wanting to free bleed. And so you want to just be able to lay in bed and relax and not have to worry about that. It's a beautiful thing for that. They also talk about it for your babies, like putting it in their crib or something so that if you have leakage from their diapers or maybe your changing pad, Um, They're so versatile in so many different ways you can use it, and again, they're so beautiful. They have an amazing array of colors, and definitely check them out. You want to have something lovely to have at your home birth. This is something that would definitely elevate that process.
0: Yeah, and obviously it's machine washable and just soft and cushy. And I'm very happy that they've chosen to be a sponsor for us. So if you if you go to um, www.splashblanket.com. That's S-P-L-A-S-H-B-L-A-N-K-E-T for those of us who are literally challenged. And mm-hmm. put in the code, the code Birthing Instincts, you get 11% off your purchase. So that's SplashBanket.com, code Birthing Instincts for 11% off your purchase. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Splash Blanket. Thank you. For me, when listening to you guys and your story, first of all, Sarah, your story about Africa did some volunteer work in kenya on cervical cancer screening and i still remember the first time i went there we did what's called see and treat where we people would come and we would spray their cervix with vinegar things that they have on hand and then we would look at their cervix and if they had an area that was abnormal we would treat it we don't you don't do paps you don't do biopsies because they don't have labs and they don't have the money for that sort of thing but i remember and this is not a slight on a charitable organization but a charitable organization Five years earlier, had donated a four thousand dollar culposcope to this clinic, and the culposcope was still wrapped in plastic. Four years later, had never been opened. So the the answer to these things, if you're going to people want to give money or something like that, is not to give money to governments or not to give money, but to give money to tell stories. And the fact that, you know, watching your documentary and watching the storytelling, that's the most powerful. And that's what's going to hopefully promote change. Uh, I just was speaking to a midwife in England this morning on a Zoom meeting, and she was telling me about the problem they have with multiples in England, uh, with twins. And there's nobody that really knows what they're doing with twins there. And the women have no choices. And they only know what the tangential things they see on, you know, a beautiful Facebook post. And they think, oh, I'm going to do that too. Or they follow what their mfm says and they end up getting overtested and you know eventually find something wrong and get induced and babies end up in the nicu and this is considered the standard of care and what you were describing earlier too Paula you said something about you know you had this lovely lovely home birth and your friend went through this process where she ended up with an emergency c section the medical community would consider her birth to be the norm and your birth to be the the dangerous outlying thing that's craziness of the world that we live in so i'm i'm real appreciative of what you're saying and also just having watched the film i think it was just yesterday because i had obviously i had to watch before I, you guys came on and uh, I mean, by it's the way, that it's, way. A, it's a, <laughs> I know you picked the name, but it's a tough name because you, you know, you search Google for Born Free. And no, and
3: you get lions. All you get is lions,
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> so you should tell people right now and we'll tell them I get the end. But how do they find your documentary? It's
3: on It's currently on Amazon and it is on iTunes and it is on Google Play. And if you search Born Free, you will find it. But yes, like you said on iTunes, we're a new film, so we have to like claw our way up through the SEO
0: and become. <laughs> I think you, I think you were the second choice on okay. iTunes because that's where I watched it yesterday. So that's good.
3: And tell people to avoid lions. Yes, it is not the, the film <laughs> it's from not the seventies lion, no. about lions. <laughs> right. I think it's if you a, might a, be good too.
2: Which is if another good to...
0: film, by the way. I mean, yes. it's another good film, but it's not the one. Right.
2: <laughs> I think if you look at Born Free documentary instead of Born Free film it gives you the difference.
0: Okay. That's good.
1: Why don't one of you, because you, you probably have, you know, like the elevator pitch, so to speak of the synopsis of the film. If you wanted to describe to our audience who haven't seen it yet, what would you tell them?
3: I guess to me, it's an investigation in the state of birth in the United States today. And the questions really tipping off with the question, why do we have the only rising maternal mortality rate in the developed world. And it kind of sets off on this long exploration which goes through the United States, talking to kind of everyone involved in this question to find out why, but also asking questions of how can we make it better? Because I don't think this is, you know, I think it was really important to me that this film isn't just, yes, these awful things are happening, but this isn't the end. You know, this has to come from a place of hope and this has to come from a place that we can facilitate change. And you do have choices and education is key. And these are the things you should be informed about. And I don't care what kind of birth you want to have, you know, have an elective C-section if that is what makes you feel good and empowered and safe. And that's right for you. And go and have your baby like on a cliff with the ocean. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I'm like. If that's good and safe and what's right for you, you know, and I think to me, really, the film is that journey of understanding what birth looks like in the United States today, why it's in the state it's in and kind of how we got there. And the very end is those questions of how do we move on from here? Because we're not in a good place right now.
0: What did you discover? If you have to to give the top two or three reasons why we're where we are right now, what did you discover?
3: I hate to say racism is probably one of the really big things in terms of why, you know, if you talk about, for example, why midwives disappeared in the United States, a big part of that was racism, was trying to get rid of the granny midwives in the South and take away power from those specific communities. I think. You know, the fact that we don't fully understand how the system operates in the United States. And also, the, a lot of compassion that I gained, I think, for providers, particularly OBs who are trying to operate within a system that is so hard for them to exist in. And OBs who are trying to do something different or think differently or offer more options to birthing people. I think that was a big takeaway. Whereas, I think, you know, I was like, midwives for the win. And of course, midwives for the win. But I also didn't take into account just how hard it is for OBs right now and nurses and people operating within hospital systems and under insurance groups, because it's virtually impossible for anyone to offer a standard of care that, like you said, isn't the norm or isn't just what's been told and expected. So I think that's a big takeaway is the lack of individualized care. And the last thing is just how little all of us know. I mean, maybe not all four of us on this call, but <laughs> you, you know, I think in general, it's so late. And I was reading recently about the American Heart Foundation was talking about this idea of the zero trimester and how that's so important and how we should all actually know in an ideal world ways in which we can care for ourselves before we become pregnant, or at least have some kind of understanding of our options before we become pregnant. You know, even if your pregnancy is the surprise, I think being a young person who understands what birth is and how it works and what's normal and what your choices are and ways in which you can take care of yourself are also like a big vital component. So to me, I guess, unfortunately, racism is a huge part of it the systemic issues in which doctors are kind of working with one hand behind their back, and then the lack of education.
0: Do you know what time it is?
1: It's time to talk about Element.
0: Yeah, because it's salty as?
1: (laughs) Salty as (laughs) fuck.
0: There you go. All right, so (laughs) Element is one of our sponsors. They've been with us for a while, and they're a salty, tasty, electrolyte drink that has all the good stuff and none of the BS, as Bliss likes to say. And Bliss, why don't you tell us a little bit about their new special thing?
1: Yeah, so they're so excited for us to announce that they have a chocolate medley, which is three flavors, chocolate caramel, mint chocolate, and chocolate salt. So it sounds delicious. You can put them in any of your hot beverages or obviously the way that you would normally have used your element.
0: Yeah, I like to to call it the menage of chocolate, but... But we also <laughs> they also have all the regular flavors like uh, yeah. unflavored unflavored and mango chili and raspberry and watermelon and probably other ones we're forgetting citrus. So go to uh, www.drinkelement.com backslash birthing instincts. It's not a code. It's a backslash birthing instincts, and you do that, and you're going to get a free sample pack with no matter what size you make. So. Go to drinkelement.com backslash birthing instincts. Support them because they support us.
1: Thanks, Element.
0: Thanks, Element. Yeah, I would say that like when you talk about racism and the doctors being, you know, I feel significantly strongly about both of those. And the problem is, is the answer is always in the corporate world is just, you know, pour more money at it and more more access to care. You know, it's a term that you'll hear passed around state legislatures in Washington, D.C., but it doesn't state anything about the quality of the care that they're getting access to. And if you're getting access to care that is crap, then your results are going to continue to be crap. And um, th- the people that are running our systems right now that make it hard for the nurses and the doctors to treat people as individuals and not as you know, cogs in a wheel or or whatever, their interest is not in making it better for the individual woman in labor. Their interest is the business model of which they have ultimate control of. And so, you know, it's, it's a really, really complicated thing in the current framework, which is why Bliss and I often talk about the idea that, you know, I don't know that the current system is fixable or that you can do anything with it. Because the people that run it are never going to let go of it and they'll run it into the ground and they'll continue to think they're doing a good job. So, you know, we've looked at alternatives and it's really hard to start something up like that because you face all kinds of legal and legislative obstacles put in your way to trying to provide the good sort of care. We talked, listen, I have involved in a project in Kentucky, maybe, that, you know, is an ideal situation. It's a small start. But there's so many obstacles to trying to get that off the ground legally and, you know, in, industrially and that sort of thing that that I don't know how how you make the change. So I guess this long-winded question for both of you is you put out this... Fil- is
1: there a question in there? <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a question. There's a question.
0: Because I know what we think, Bliss, because we talk every week all the time. But yeah, I want to know from your point say. of view as mothers... How do we reach all the other mothers to, you know, maybe we need to make it uncomfortable for the doctors and nurses that are, are, are just keeping their heads down and working every day. But that's not fair because they're not the ones really causing the problem. What solution, you said we have to come up with solutions. Are there something that you can see? Obviously, it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow or this year. But is there something that you can see that's going to change in the United States in our current environment? I think yeah, the I, money. Sorry, go ahead.
1: I, I just want to add something into that question too, because question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but because you know, as I mentioned, I was in your position, Paula, thirty years ago. My baby just turned thirty, and so you know, I've been looking at it for thirty years and jumped in like you did. Like I'm going to make a change. I, it's about education and informing people. And what I have found is, even with a woman, I'm sitting with a woman, and she's got all the information. She still can be totally terrified to bump up against the cultural paradigms and is so, it's so ingrained in her that it's more than just pointing the finger. I think that's kind of what you're talking about, Stu. Yeah. It's like pointing the finger at the system, which in your film, you talk about episiotomies and how it's been outdated for 20 years, yet there's still people cutting episiotomies regularly because. Even with the information and the statistics and the studies and all of this advocacy, getting things to change in the hospital, it, it takes forever. And then we've got this all of these women who are inundated with the information, as you also talked about in the film, images and stuff that we see in media. And so even when you help them understand that there's an option, they're not always taking that option. So... Answering this question, I just kind of wanted to bring that into the conversation as well.
3: And I like you said this is really complicated. I don't think there's yeah. one like, oh, this is the answer and we can do it. I'm
1: gonna
3: fix, fix America. Please, um, please. No. please.
0: <laughs> I've been but searching I, for my entire career.
3: <laughs> I what I do think is interesting now is actually some of the investment in femtech and healthcare tech and the disruptions in insurance industries. Because I think, like you said, it's a capitalist system. It's a capitalist structure. And none of us can pretend that it's not going to be that. So I think what's really going to help facilitate change is one, for example, in the end of the film, I actually went to Mother Ad Agency and I was like, please rebrand midwives and birth for us in the United States because we need to rebrand it. Like a corporate thing, like take this on as like, Let's advertise it to every woman in the United States. Like these are what midwives do, and this is why they're fantastic. And let's reframe it and become and start from like 15-year-olds seeing imagery and normalization of that imagery. Because like you said, it's so ingrained in so many people. So I think taking it as a business, but if the business on one side is the business of fear, then we'll take our business on the other side and we'll treat it like a business and communicate in the way and use the great advertising experience and the great marketing experience and the fashion magazine people. And like, let's take our allies and talk about it in a different way and take it seriously in that sense, because I do think that's how you change a conversation, at least generationally. And then I think also, yeah, let's look at corporate disruptors let's look at where the venture capital money is going. Is someone going to come in and create an insurance company that pays specifically for birth and it creates a home birth network and it creates a legal framework in which it's actually cheaper for families to access home birth care or midwife care? Is there going to be a model that creates a midwife in every, you know, small town mall that you can drop in and takes it up to scale. I think, unfortunately, as much as, you know, I'm a a big hippie at heart, you have to take this on a corporate level. And that's where the change is going to come. It's going to come from having people see there's an opportunity here. And there is a swell. And I think particularly if you look at like Gen Z, they want all the information, They want all the information about all the things. They're like, educate me, give me everything. Tell me, I want to make my own choices. I want to understand where this is coming from. I think if you could come in through that generation and create an audience and then create a customer base, because effectively healthcare is customer based in the United States, which it is in no other nation in the same way. So we really have to communicate to our customers, which then allows those in venture capital to see a market. And that's how we're going to kind of change things, which maybe sounds really weird and messed up, but I think it's the only way for like real systemic change to happen.
1: No, again, I'm going to share with you, it's so funny. I love having this conversation with you, but when we created the sanctuary, which I don't know if you know, but it's a birth center that I had in Los Angeles. It was the first birth center in that area in a a long time because they had all closed. And the vision was, to create a brand that could be kind of like i know this sounds terrible but kind of like the starbucks of birth centers of midwives so that no matter where you were you could see that brand and you knew that it was trustworthy and it was recognizable and and you know what it came down to was investors And money. And, you know, and after a while, I was so exhausted (laughs) from trying to just get this one center to be profitable without me sitting behind the desk that, you know, I finally said, I'm just gonna have a small home birth practice. (laughs) And Sarah knows I have a little PTSD from, you know, like doing that work, but it's the same concept that you're talking about, is it's creating competition for the current model so that. The consumers are the ones who are demanding it, which creates a shift. So it's, yes, I agree. (laughs) And I would add to that because
2: I think that a big part of looking at the VC funding and looking at disrupting the corporate part of it, I think that's like the very high level we've made it, we're disrupting all of it. And I think to reach that level, there has to be a lot more private funding to have more midwives and communities to... Um, A lot of times there's a huge link that there aren't enough BIPOC midwives for, to Mm service a a certain community. Because if you look at the history of midwifery, it wasn't a bunch of white women, quite frankly. So Mm -hmm. bringing that back, having access to more midwives in a lot of these communities, and that's going to all come from private funding before you can make it to the very big step. And I think mostly how that's an education, private funding is going to start for part of it because- A lot of midwifery, obviously, practices are you have to pay out of pocket. Same with a lot of obstetricians that don't want to work just within the system. You know, like Paula said, the ones that are practicing with one hand tied behind their back, a lot of them, you have to pay those out of pocket, too, because they don't want to be part of the bigger system. So if we're able to create more funding so that that access to that care is available to more people, that continues to give us more stories to tell, more people to inspire, you know. When I told people that I had my twins unmedicated, the best possible hospital experience, but I fought for that experience. I went out to find the care provider that I want to have what I could and then ended up having two home births afterwards. And people go, wow, you're brave or wow, you're lucky. And I'm like, nope, just educated. There's no other answer. I just did my homework and I followed through and turns out our bodies know how to do it. Mind-blowing, right? So I think that a big part of that is also just being able to, to tell these stories. And the more it comes, like Bliss, you just said, the more the consumer asks for it, the more everybody's going to have to provide it. And so if we're able to find enough of a demand for collaborative care between midwives and OBs, you know, Stu, you're like the perfect example of that, actually, in some ways, the- But the I had more, to go
0: outside. I had to leave the system to do it.
2: But you had to, exactly, you know, and it, or even in the film, you know, the the farm midwives talk about how they just through this loophole managed to get the collaborative care that they needed. And they've worked with a certain amount of OBs for, you know, the under 2% that they ever have to transfer in, you know, 40, 50 years. So I think that that's kind of hopefully where we're going for it to be a more open conversation. It's so polarizing. It's such a polarizing topic. You're either a hippie home birther you know, and in the film, Paula, you illustrate what people think a doula is and what people assume a midwife is, and there's all these right? So you're either that or you're a uh, nope, I'm gonna go buy the book and I'm gonna fault, do what my insurance tells me and what my OB tells me and I'm only fa- you know there's there's no happy medium. and I think that that's currently maybe harder to find, but that should be the norm. You should be able to be on either side if you prefer to, but there should be a an environment where you're able to take Whatever makes you most comfortable in your birth experience from both of those
0: worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so few physicians that are coming out of residency now have the opportunity to be independent. They all become essentially corporate employees. And then you take somebody like the expert that you had in your film, who happens to be our friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Chavira. Mm -hmm. And he was somebody who was supporting us and supporting what we did, very supportive of what we do, and was taking our transports and was doing breaches. And other things in the hospital. And then of course, what happens? Like what's happened to most of us who've left that birth world, the hospital comes down on you and says, Oh, we're going to ban VBAC, we're going to ban breach delivery. You can't do this. You can't do this at our institution. So you, you know, it takes really strong people to stand up to that sort of thing, especially if you've got a mortgage and a spouse mm-hmm. and children and all that stuff to fight back against a system that can crush you. But that's what we're going to need to do. And I think your point about developing more midwives. And midwives of color and stuff is really important because I saw this funny statistic that said if we were to take every pregnant woman in the United States and give them to a midwife right now, each midwife would have about 24,000 clients in their practice (laughs) (laughs) because that's how many midwives we have. And and then we have 4 million women giving birth every year in the United States. And you just divide it up and you come up with some crazy number of, it's not doable. But what's interesting also is that the specialty of OBGYN is also having hard time recruiting right now. And so midwives are going to become the default position and when corporations learn that they can hire I'm not saying this is the best way for midwives to practice but at least there'll be some midwives in the system but the best way to to handle their budgets and stuff like that would be to hire three midwives instead of one OB. And I was going to
3: say go to your point um speaking to Charles who's the father who lost his wife in the film he lives in Georgia and I think it's half maybe just under half of all counties in Georgia do not have a care provider a maternal health care provider within yep. the county and so to me like you said there's going to become this like literal crunch where there's going to have to be a solution and
0: one and- of the and one of the best providers in in Georgia a friend of ours named Brad Boots Taylor I don't know if you've heard of him but um, he he was a, a a black man he was a eloquently spoken he was a former military he was um, an mfm who supported breach and twin deliveries and he got run out of his hospital in atlanta right
3: yeah and so i think that there's going to come like a literal need and i think that's almost where the crack is, is the fact that we need providers and we need them in all these spaces. And like you said, if we could keep training midwives and we could, at least in those counties, they could have access to some level of care and some local care provider that they could go and see, even for all of their prenatal care, even if they had to travel slightly further afield for the birth, you know, I think if you start there, if you start normalizing the idea amongst these hospital groups, but also amongst moms, that they can see these people week in, week out, and they do have the experience and they are trained and it is safe and they trust them. I think that's how we're going to build trust. And I think it's going to have to happen because like you said, not that many doctors are choosing to become OBs anymore because it's so rough and there are not enough midwives. So we're going to have to invest both at a federal level, a state level and a commercial level in more midwives and nurse midwives and have maybe OBs kind of work with them because otherwise who's going to be delivering all these babies? Like it's just, you know.
0: You're right about that. I love when you talked about the advertising and marketing and making midwifery much more mainstream. What's that?
1: (laughs) Making midwives cool again.
0: Well, midwives have always been cool. They just haven't been marketed well, but the scary part for me, guys, is that who's going to train these midwives? Mm. Are they going to be trained in the medical model? And then what do you have? You have midwives, right. So we got we have to somehow
1: the whole other conversation
0: well, it's also we have to market the midwifery model of care, mm-hmm. not just midwives.
1: I, I think the part
2: that also we have we have to address is there is their prenatal care and everybody thinks about this around just when the baby comes, right? Which if you look at a whole pregnancy, if you look at all of what's would get to get to that point, that's a really short window in time where a woman is actually needing care. And I think where midwives are a really important puzzle piece, even if a family is seeking OB care, even if a family had to have an emergency C-section, even if whatever the outcome of the actual birth process may be, I think postpartum, we're not taking care of our families enough. And if you start to look at statistics around the maternal mortality rate and what percentage of that is caused due to maternal mental health declining, there's a huge gap right there where midwives can fulfill that. In the UK, again, even if you have a C-section, you're sent home three days later, day five, day seven, day nine, NHS midwives are going to come over and check on you. They're going to make sure you have a lactation consultant if that's what you choose. And I, having had, you know, midwifery care and OB care, I happen to have an OB who actually came to my house when my twins were a week old, right? I happen to get that unicorn, who Dr. Rocky, who's in the in the film, right? But knowing how important, and then having had my, you know, second birth at home, how are the older brothers adjusting? How are you feeling about it? Are you overwhelmed with having had another baby? What is that? You know, so many questions, not about how are you healing and how's your breastfeeding? That we were good on. But how am I feeling about having brought another baby into my mix? How is my, you know, mom guilt? How am I managing that? Am I off my feet enough? All those little things that make such a big difference to a new mom or a second time, third time, fifth time, tenth time mom, and that keep to be checked in on. And I think that this whole idea of here's your baby, good luck, see you in six weeks, you know, and those are really crucial six weeks. So I think there's a whole nother bit to this where as much as and Georgia is not the only example where there's a lack of access for antenatal care. We need to make sure there's just as much postnatal care, you know, and that's
3: a huge, a huge factor, I think, in minimizing this rising rate. And I think in that there's the continuity of care as well, because that six weeks thing, I've had friends who are really struggling at that six weeks yeah. checkup, but they're just given a list to check. Are you doing good? Do you want to harm your baby? Do you want to... and a lot of people lie because as a new mother, you don't want to answer the truth to any of those God, questions because no. you're concerned. You're like, well, they're going to take my baby away if I say I'm not okay. Whereas I think if you have a relationship where it's maybe been pre-birth, they understand what your birth was like, and then you they see you regularly through that postpartum period, they can pick up on you because they know you. You know, they can see how you're doing because there's a continuity of care. I was talking to a pediatrician who says most referrals for postpartum depression come from pediatricians because pediatricians see the mom much more regularly than the OB does, which is wild, (laughs) you know, like it's it's such like a backwards thing. But because we have all these newborn checks, they see the mother much more. And they're actually the ones calling out and saying, I think you need some help you know i think it's it's a definitely an important factor it's
0: an extension of the of the way the medical model looks at pregnancy as a procedure or as a an event like knee surgery i mean knee surgery if you go in for a follow up with a different surgeon you can still get follow up but even though that's it's still better to have okay. the person that did the surgery and talk to them but the midwifery model has taught me you know i had to unlearn pretty much everything i learned in residency about caring for women in in pregnancy and and then labor and and the postpartum period of time. Because you're right, it was day two, go home, I'll see you in six weeks. And that's the model by which most OBs practice. So the idea that having continuity could help lower morbidity and mortality and postpartum depression makes so much more sense I mean, I still remember when I started with midwives and they would, you know, they had the slogan that says, we're your midwife for life and, you know, you're available 24-7 and OBs are not. I was because I was an idiot um, and, I, and I, <laughs> I took my own call, you know, every day for all those years, but, but that kind of practice isn't existing much anymore. And so people work shifts and shift medicine might be fine for, you know, ERs. And x-ray reading and stuff like that, but it's not fine for obstetrics and and for this kind of care,
1: yeah. and you know, I think you have to start at the basics, and that's kind of what we're talking about is just getting access to care and having enough midwives to be able to cover this. and but you know, it goes so much deeper than that, right? And we as women and moms understand that that the capacity for us to be able to raise these children and and to really do a good job to be there, we have to be supported ourselves. and you know we've moved away from villages we've moved away from community this is so much bigger and midwifery at least in the way that i was trained in midwifery is addressing some of those issues you know where we are being loving and tender and helping women understand that they deserve support and that they don't have to get right back on their feet and the best thing for them to do is to be laying in bed and and bonding you know, and, and how different is a mom raising a baby when she has had just had a transformational joyous experience and is supported by her community or a woman who had a traumatic experience and is coming home and is barely surviving emotionally to be able to handle this change, you know, so Mm -hmm. getting access to care and, and training more midwives. Yes, absolutely. And I think oftentimes as a culture, we're not talking about the bigger picture about like as a culture, we're really in trouble. And it starts with birth, starts with pregnancy. It starts with being supported during this time. So,
2: and I think doulas create a really small band aid somewhere in between there. Cause if you're with, if you're with somebody for her entire pregnancy, her birth, and maybe, you know, I don't know, it happens. The full moon happens. Midwives go to -to back-to-back births. And can't quite check in day two or day three. Well, that's where a doula can set it because we're we're trained enough to be able to ask kind of the right questions, understand, you know, quote unquote the norm, and be able to raise a red flag if we feel it to the care provider, you know, which again, as we move away from villages and we don't have the aunties and the grandmothers around or the sister, whatever it might be, that can say, hmm, that's you know, you whatever, you know, whatever the concern might be. I think doulas can create just a very small bridge in there. And often work very closely with the care provider also, you know, throughout that, that time. So I think that as that there's a much bigger picture, obviously. And then it goes way deeper. Why aren't people choosing the profession? What is, you know, it's multi-layered and multifaceted, and there's no one answer. But I think that starting in small, in just our communities, you know, Bliss, you and I, literally in our community and understanding, right? I mean, knowing, you know, we... We had someone in common that is under Bliss's care and we knew that there was going to be a decision that might be hard for her. And I went over to sit with her when we knew that was going to be handed down because I knew she was going to need that support in that moment. And I created a very small band-aid, but I was there. I was there to hold her hand. And sometimes that's all you need to be able to take the next step that it, whatever it might be in your care. And so I think being able to feel like at least in smaller pockets, because it's going to be hard to do everywhere all at once, like the Starbucks birth center, I think we're a ways away from. But I think that there are basic educational means by which we can create these pockets of care, of collaborative care within our communities. And again, I, I think that starts with storytelling,
3: with being able to connect the dots. I was just going to say, growing up in the UK, you have a thing called the NCT, which is the National Childbirth Trust. And what they do is they build community based around your birth date and it's a non-profit but it is linked with the NHS and every midwife tells people this is your group and these are the people in your neighborhood who are due to have babies around the same time as you and they put on i think for the first 6 months like gatherings basically and maybe you know you hate everyone that you're gathering you don't want to go anymore <laughs> that's fine but they have a nurse midwife visits and they have a child birth like a a child care visitor who will also visit but they really just also let the moms have the community and a lot of those people have those communities for like their children's entire childhood but like you said it's a very simple thing but it creates this pocket of community and I think when you talk about for example you know Black women not feeling seen or hard. I think if you could give them community and help them find that community and help them have care providers who they feel safe with, I think that's a huge shift and a huge thing that you're able to do. And like Chanel in the film runs Ancient Song Dealers and what well, a lot of the work they do is to create a community and a safety net. And they'll do everything from providing diapers if you're struggling to afford them to having someone to talk to you to providing true doula care. But, you know, I think this idea of being able to have a system of kind of mother's meetings, which sounds so archaic and strange to us now, but I think that's a big part of this conversation of what's missing is like helping people find their village again. And I think that's where OB, like the medical system, like you said, it's not surgery, it's something else. Birth is other, you know? And so it's kind of like a mix between social work and medicine, you know, it's like how does all of these components fit together? Um, anyway, sorry, Stuart.
0: Yeah, and I would say most of the time it's not medicine at all. Well, maybe fifteen yeah. percent of the time it's medicine. The other time it's it's what you guys were describing, what Sarah was describing. It's humanity, it's community. I mean, I was really impressed when I was up in Santa Barbara with Bliss one time, and they have this group, and I can't remember the name of the group. centerline um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, we sat outside, mm-hmm. and couples that were pregnant came, and we used to do this at the sanctuary too. We have a sense of community. And then when you were talking about doula, Sarah, I was thinking as, you know, from my perspective, anybody that wants to do doula work is a saint, in my opinion, because by just the very nature that you want to be a doula means that you are somebody who actually has humanity and who cares because you're not getting rich most most of the time being a doula. And the hours can be incredibly long. and And it is that bridge. It's actually more than a bridge. It is one of the pedestals of the bridge. Without doulas, I think that the system does collapse, and then we end up with what we have. So it's it's of vital importance.
2: I, I wonder for me what I the, this is always when I people ask what's my interest in maternal health and why. And actually, Charles says this really well. Who's in the film? He says you're, there's one of two people in the world. You either are a mother, or you came from a mother, yeah. right? And I remember reflecting on what would have happened if my mom hadn't survived her births. Right, like, what would that look like for me? And realizing, like, what if? And then working in Uganda for so many years, I'm thinking to myself, man, she has four other children that are all under the age of, you know, six, and she's pregnant again. Statistically, she probably shouldn't survive this birth, right? And how does that weigh on her throughout this pregnancy? No, you know, and they moved further away from their clinic, or she doesn't have the same midwife that used to be in her community clinic or things like that. Right. And it deeply inspires me to pursue, to get the answers. And then the thing that blows my mind about the United States is for several years now, this isn't just like a one-off statistic post pandemic. This is for several years. There's an average of about 700 women who die due to childbirth related complications every year. And I think to myself that if we had 700 people that died in airplane crashes every year, not a single American would be flying. Yet it's like it's well it's only 700 compared to x amount of births so or it's one, and that blows my because it's true it's like if we had one you know i 700 mothers that's just childbirth that's not yeah the i mean one month.
0: kid falls off a teeter-totter and they take out the teeter-totters <laughs> exactly. at the park you know or one kid drowns in a swimming pool which is tragic and they pass a law that says every swimming pool has to have a fence around it. right right but this yeah, but you're we right. not
1: protecting mothers but they I mean, we, keep doubling down on More interventions, more surgeries, Mm -hmm. more medication, more, 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 thinking that that's going to solve the problem and not really seeing or being able to see or being willing to be really honest about we're not meeting the needs. We've got to completely look at this. And that's why I think going outside of the system and trying to create new paradigms is really where we're going to make a change. Because it's obvious to me that putting energy and attention in trying to have them change is beating mm-hmm. our head against the wall, and I loved the word that you used. And I'm gonna, I'm mi- missing it now, but kind of breaking up the system. You used a really great word. What was it? Disrupting. Disrupt. Yes. I think that that is really the key right now is to disrupt all of it. How we see birth, what what we see as possible, and the systems, and all of that. I think that's the only way that we're really gonna have.
0: Well, we're good at that. that. You and I, Bliss. <laughs> we're
1: trying, man. We're trying in our little corner over here.
0: Before we yeah. wrap up, I just have like uh, a, a question about movie making or documentary filmmaking. Because
1: um, we're big, we're big movie buffs too. You guys don't know that about us, but Stephen so big-
0: obviously, since you didn't have a lot of experience in that, but you obviously had some people that were advising you and helping you. What was the the best part of it, and what was the hardest part of it of doing this this documentary?
3: I think for for me personally, the hardest part was I came from like fashion and visuals and having like everything perfectly art directed and it was going to be this beautiful script and it was going to play out this way and it was going to come documentary. When I was beginning, a very established documentary producer was like, you won't know the film you're making until you filmed your last interview. And I was like, no, I'm going to come with a plan and it's going to be like this and I'm going to tell this story. And she was like, nope. You're not going to know the film you're making until you have your last interview. And it's true. You don't know what the story is because it's about people. It's, you know, it's reality. And they kind of. So that part to me was really scary and hard was to just not know what you were doing until you got it all back and then still not really knowing what you were doing because you then just have to sit with an editor and piece together all of these stories. And, you know, Born Free doesn't have a traditional narrative structure in like we're following one story, we're telling the story of a sister, which obviously is super complicated and could go together in like every different which way. It's like creating Tetris. So that was also, we had like these scary walls of storyboards and, you know, How does this connect to this? Because actually everything connects to everything else. So how do you make that linear? So I think to me, that part was hard. Some people have said to me, was it hard? The sad stories, were they hard? And I was like, obviously, you know, we're human, you know, sitting with people with their pain and their grief is really hard. But actually those people, especially people like Charles and Kimberly, who turned their pain into action, Was so hopeful and so inspiring. And I came out of those interviews being like, we can change things because these people have gone through the absolute worst. And look at the incredible things that they're doing, and look at how brave they are, and look at all the advantages that they are trying to find and take and make change and make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else. When I don't know if I could have done that in that situation, you know, like having lost your partner, the mother of your children, to turn that into huge change, to create bills, to create huge conversation. Like those people to me were so inspiring. And I think that to me was the kind of most amazing part of the filmmaking was the people. And I don't know if you're supposed to do this, but I'm still like friends now with every single person who's basically in the film and I text them all and we still communicate and it's become like a giant family. And I'm assuming not all documentaries are that way because you probably don't want to hang out with like a murder mystery um, or or cocaine cowboys afterwards. But for me, that sense of community that I found through the filmmaking was was really important. Um, Thank you. And, you know... I guess the last part was crew. I made the film intentionally with an all-female crew, everyone from visual effects to editor to our composers. And, you know, nothing against men, but I felt like I wanted to tell the story from a way that felt very, like, Mm female-centric. And, you know, and I hope that that comes through in the storytelling because every single voice and every single decision comes from that. Perspective, um yeah. which was also kind of.
0: Violent. Well, I would say as a you succeeded because as a male who's who's basically surrounded by by women all the time, I enjoyed the film immensely. It, it was great.
1: Amazing,
3: appreciate it.
1: Yeah, so tell us again how our listeners can find the film.
3: Sarah, I feel like you were much better at explaining this clearly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You can find the film readily available for purchase on iTunes. It is Born Free Documentary, or you can just go into your search bar and look up Born Free Documentary. Alternatively, if you go to themotherlovers.com, there is all the information about the organization and also the trailer and how to purchase it or watch it on the website.
1: Great. And besides watching the film and sharing it, is there anything else that you guys want to talk about in terms of action items that we might be able to help with? I think your listeners probably know this, but for me, watch the film. It's a
2: beautiful storytelling journey, not that really illustrates where we're at with our maternal care in America. But I think most importantly, what every listener can do is Educate yourself. Educate yourself about what's available in your community. And if it's not available in your community, find out how you can make it available in your your community. Listen to other people's birth stories, knowing they're not yours, but it's a good thing to listen to be able to make an informed decision about what would feel right for you if you're in that position. And I would say that don't sweep this under the rug until just until you're, oh, well, I'm not there yet. I'm not having babies or whatever it might be. This is something that you need to be educated on long before your journey in parenthood. And also keep educated on long after for the sake of your potential grandchildren or for your community around you. You know, I think that be someone's village, even if you you already have had your own children or or whatever that might be. But for me, it's education and it's a family issue. Dads, moms, aunts, everybody's involved in this. Everybody should be educated. Very specifically, and I think that especially in your with your birth partner, I think that's a really important thing i I encounter a lot of women that say, "Oh, I would have had a home birth, but my husband didn't want to." And my answer always is, "No way did he give birth." You know, because I think this is something that you know, and I've had the conversation with dads who are so unsure because so much of the a lot of it can be very tainted. You know, a lot of the resources can be tainted because well we know who they're funded by. But I would just say, be educated and find out what you can have access to in your own community.
1: Amazing. Ladies, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. I immensely enjoyed the film and I really enjoyed this conversation and I know our listeners will too. So thanks for your time. And thanks Paula for, you know, being the kind of person that in postpartum decided to make a film. I mean, (laughs) pretty amazing. (laughs) Um, so thank you so much for being here you guys can drop off Stu and I are gonna um, wrap up the podcast but we really enjoyed having you thank you so much it's
2: so
0: nice thank you thank you guys to meet
1: you in person Stu when you're up in Santa Barbara next time
0: uh we'll make sure what happens
2: yeah I hope so bye bliss bye bye guys bye
0: well that was a good choice
1: to bring them on yeah Oh, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to be talking with a lactation expert about early days of breastfeeding.
0: Right up my alley.
1: (laughs) I know. (laughs) I suggested the topic and you were like, I don't have anything to add. I'm like, great. I'll get, I'll bring somebody on.
0: So that's what we're going to do next week. Everything I know about breastfeeding, I know from you. So from you guys. So
1: that's right. That's right. Well, it's great to see you. I hope you have a good time where you're at, and you enjoy the project. Yeah, next enjoy next week journey. I'll
0: be in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm hoping that I oh, run great. into you. We'll cross paths. Mm-hmm. And okay, so everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll uh, we'll see you next week.
1: Okay, bye bye.